Please take your Bibles and turn to Genesis 32. I only have 10 of the verses there on your outline, so please use your electronic version or your pew Bible or hard copy, whatever you brought, and keep your Bible open to Genesis 32. We have just left one very tense meeting between Jacob and Laban, only to be confronted now with an even more tense and dangerous situation. It was dangerous with Laban, no doubt, but the one the situation that Jacob is now walking to or moving to um, is, uh, could be catastrophic. We're talking about having to meet with Esau. You remember Esau's last sentiments towards his brothers 20 years ago, 20 years before, was he wanted him dead. He wanted to kill him. Uh, Jacob had swindled him twice. Uh, Jacob was about Jacob. Now, Jacob's changed. This isn't the same Jacob. Yeah, we'll still see some of the old Jacob, no doubt, just like we see the same old any one of us at times in our lives. Uh, But there is something that has happened. Jacob has met God. He met God in Bethel 20 years prior, and God has given him assurance and led him out back to go home. But to go home, Jacob would eventually have to face Esau. It's interesting because this story that we see unfold, Jacob has a choice. He doesn't have to go to the south to Edom where Esau is. He could have just gone north back to Bethel right away, but he knows that there needs to be a confrontation. He knows he's wronged Esau as well. All of this, uh, no doubt, comes in like a flood as he makes this decision about moving towards Canaan and especially to stay to the south where he will have to prepare to meet Esau. This is that account. Here now as I read Genesis 32, this is God's holy word. Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of the place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Sire, the country of Edom, instructing them, thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you. And there are four hundred men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good. And make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 
200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are presents sent to my Lord Esau, and moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who follow the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him, and you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. The same night he arose and took his two wives and two female servants and his eleven children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? He said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Father, the ongoing story of Jacob's life keeps teaching us more and more. By the ministry of your holy word, please help us to understand what you have communicated here in your word. May each of us be impacted by your truth. Please grow our faith, grow our walk with you, guide our actions by what we learn today. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Hopefully, with me, you can see Jacob's life is really a work in progress, just like your life is, just like my life is. More like our lives than we perhaps would admit. Aren't we glad that our lives and all the details are not laid bare in the scriptures like this for us to analyze over the centuries? Because Jacob, we've seen him to be quite a piece of work. Now, we've also seen God meet him. In fact, 20 years before the episode I just read, he met Jacob at Bethel. And you remember, that was a life-changing moment. This is where Jacob truly understood and grasped the grace that was going to be shown to him through Abraham and Isaac. Jacob would personally receive that grace himself as a covenant bearer. Now, before that time, he had lived a life of all sorts of swindling and trickery and scheming. Stratagem was the name of his game. He loved to play that game with people, and it was at great cost. That's why he had to leave. But he met God, and now things are different for Jacob, 
And slowly but definitely surely, from the time he's under Laban's roof to the time we see him now, he's not the same person. Some of the same old ways are there, we can relate, but there's more and more changing for him as events unfold. You see, meeting God and getting to know him, that's going to have a transforming effect on our lives. Everything about your life will be different. Just look at Jacob. He stands as a bit of a, a picture of just this. The first thing we'll notice is a new spiritual awareness that uh, we start to have when we meet God. Then we'll start to talk with God. We'll interact with God. We'll have a reflex of prayer rather than a reflex of manipulation or maneuvering. Also, we'll start to exercise a selflessness in leadership especially, something that can only come from God. We'll have a new identity. All of this is laid out in the life of Jacob, and we see it progressing even further. I want you to look at the first eight verses with me and just gather how Jacob has a new spiritual awareness that we have not seen on display before. Jacob went on his way, verse 1, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. Mahanaim just simply means two camps. He's talking about the fact that he can see with spiritual eyes now something he didn't recognize before. God lets him see the providential watch care of the angels over him. This is a spiritual where he realizes this world is not just what you see. There's a spiritual world that's beyond this, that's at work. God's working these things providentially. Now, he doesn't give us glimpses of it. He just wants us to know it's true. We do get glimpses from Scripture. And he gets this spiritual awareness that God is watching over. It's interesting to note that when he entered into Padam Aram for those 20 years, that the angels of God met him at the ladder that he saw them ascending and descending. Now, as he heads back to the promised land, the angels are escorting him back. He has a real sense of God's providence being with him, visibly with these angels. In Psalm 34, David wrote, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. There's a sense in which the Lord has his hand of providence over all of his people like this. But remember how numb Jacob was spiritually before he left Canaan? He's a different person now with a different awareness. Now, what he does next tells us not that he's changed, but just that he realizes um, he's responsible for a whole household. It says in verse 3, And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Sire, the country of Edom. He knows he will have to face Esau eventually. He chooses to do it right away. Rather than go north to Bethel and wait out Esau getting word that he's back, he decides for the sake of everyone, all those he's responsible for, he needs to try to reconcile with Esau. This needs to happen. He doesn't relinquish his claim on the covenant. God has given this clearly to him. But he has wronged his brother, and it's been brewing for 20 years. He knows the mindset of his brother when he left. What will it be like after 20 years of growing and brewing more? So he says to his messengers, verse 4, Say to my lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. He's speaking from a position of humility. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. He wants Esau to know, it's not just me now, I am responsible for, for a whole company of people, a tribe, if you will. So he's trying to appeal to the humanity of Esau to some degree, describing this isn't the same Jacob that left 20 years ago. 
I have sent to tell my Lord, he's speaking very humbly to Esau, in order that I may find favor in your sight. He knows he needs the favor of Esau to live in some kind of peace. At least that's his human sense of it, and we would all understand this. The messengers return, though, with a message that's brutal. It, would make me, it makes me scared when I read it. I've read it many times already just this week. And the messengers returned saying, We came to your brother, and he's coming to meet you, and there are 400 men with him. It doesn't say he gave any message. He's on his way. Now, to put it into perspective, there's maybe 200 people here. Double this, and even more daunting than you all look, they come as a militia with him. And this is Esau. This is Esau. Remember, he is a hunter. Um, he's he's a, an aggressive person with passions, and he's very impulsive. And now he's already on his way, 400. This is way worse than the Laban situation. In the same fear that Jacob had with Laban, it's now tripled probably, maybe quadrupled since then. And it says very clearly in verse 7, then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. It doesn't mean he's not a man of faith. He's a man of reasonableness. And his brother didn't even send a message. He's coming with 400 people. He's expecting the worst has gone on. He has his anger has incubated over time, and he's coming to kill me and kill everything. That's what he's thinking. That would not be unreasonable. So he divided the people who were with him. This isn't maneuvering or scheming or strategizing. This is just survival now. We've got to split up. If he's coming with 400, we don't know when he's going to be here. Let's split up the flock, slip the flocks and the people. Look what he, said they do, he does. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps, thinking if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. He knows he's responsible for this company, his family, and those who have come into his family. He knows that the reason their lives are in peril is because of him. It's because of something that's left undone from the past. So he makes a very uh, careful move to assure at least half the people will survive if Esau comes on the warpath. Now, what I want you to notice, in addition to this, this new spiritual awareness that's been developing in Jacob, something that's in the same category, what is his response to this? Yes, he makes a move right away. That's a plan. Planning's different than strategizing or or maneuvering or manipulating. He's planning, safe. he's being defensive, he's being careful. But the very next thing he does, almost in the same movement as making this split, is he appeals to the Lord. He, his reflex now to trouble or to trial is to go to God for help, realizing at this point that nothing he has gained advantage through has come from him. It's all been because of God's hand upon him. He knows this is true. So he comes to God with an incredible prayer. In fact, it's the longest prayer in the book of Genesis. And it's, it's a model prayer for sure. You'll see this, this gives us a bit of a pattern that we see over and over again in the Old Testament with the different um, patriarchs and the prophets and such who pray to the Lord. Notice what Jacob says in his prayer. O God of my father, verse 9, my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac. So he appeals to the two people prior to him that God showed his sovereign grace to. Neither earned their way, they both had the hand of God's grace upon them. So he refers to them, God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, you're my God too, you told me this too, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. O God who has given me your grace, O God who has promised me safety, ultimate safety. Now, I don't think Jacob is fool enough to think that God couldn't take his earthly life, 
but he knew that there's purpose for him. There's a nation he was going to make out of him. He appeals to the promises of God. He draws on God's promises so that he can have courage in the face of Esau. Then he says something very humble. I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love in all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. I'm not worthy of your grace, great, this undeserved favor you have shown to me. I am not worthy of any of it. You've shown to my father and my grandfather. None of this is deserving. None of this has been earned by me. He, just, he thinks of the gospel. He thinks of God's undeserved grace shown to him, chosen by God, God's covenant of grace. He appeals to, really, the gospel ultimately. God, you're the one that's placed your hand of salvation on me. I appeal to you. I'm not worthy of any of it. So he starts his prayer there. His reflex is to go right to the grace of God, ultimately in Christ, ultimately an appeal to the covenant of grace that God has promised that will finally be realized in Jacob's greater son, the Messiah. This is a powerful prayer indeed. He says, I'm not worthy of all of the least of these deeds. He says, I came with only, in verse 10, only with my staff did I cross the Jordan. Now I've become two camps. Look at how big everything is now. This is all you. You've done all of this. Please deliver me, verse 11, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. So before he asks for what he wants, he goes back to the promise, the gracious promises of God. He starts there, and he keeps finding his strength there. Throughout his life, he goes back to those gracious promises. So do all the patriarchs. Lord, you're the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You'll see this as a repeated. That's just a way of saying, you showed them your grace. Please continue to show your grace. It goes back to the beginning point all the time to advance from wherever they are. It's never too old to go back to remembering the grace of God to us. And we see Jacob doing this in his prayer. This should be our reflex. As we come up against challenges, trials, and events that are difficult, our reflex ought to be to go to God for deliverance, for sustenance, for the ability to stand up under it, whatever it may be, Lord, your will. But we appeal to you on the basis of the promise of the gospel you've given us in Christ that we are ultimately secure no matter what happens externally. And we go back to this in prayer. We never get over going back to that remembrance. Verse 12, in his prayer, you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Again, reference to the, God, the covenant of God's grace that he gave to Abraham first, then to Isaac, and now to him. Going to God first with his problem, this becomes the new Jacob. It's not, let me figure out a scheme to get out of this. It's, first thing, I want to pray, and then I'm going to plan. He makes a plan. But the plan is in connection to his prayer, to going to the Lord first by reflex. Franz Dalich said, to keep to his word the God who keeps his word is all the way of true prayer. Just go to the Lord with what he says, what he promises. Go there first, and then ask for what it is you desire. Upon what else can Jacob rely but upon the promise of God, and how else can he do it but by praying, Dalich says. You know, when you go to the doctors today and you complain of nerve or neuropathy or you don't have feelings in your hands or your feet, one of the things they'll do, they'll take that little hammer that has the red rubber head and they'll knock you on the knee and your legs should go like this if the reflexes are working right. When that trial comes, when that difficulty comes, when that great blessing comes, that should be like the hammer hitting us on the knee and the reflex should be prayer, should be reference to God. He wants us to acknowledge him. He wants us to go to him and go to the basics, to the very beginning of it all, 
when he saved you, what he promised you in Christ, how that sustains you now no matter what might happen. Jacob appeals to God's covenant promises, and this is the very foundation of his relationship going forward, and it never gets old, referring to God's covenant promises. This year, the PCA, our denomination, is celebrating its 50th anniversary. That's, a, that's not a long time by the scope of the calendars, but it's pretty long time for a denomination, especially one to stay faithful to God's Word. For all the foibles we may have, just like individuals we have, the denomination, by God's grace, has done a good job of staying true to His Word and to His Gospel. This week, though, we lost two of our most prominent pastors, two of our most influential pastors over the years. PCA is not too prone to hyper-celebrity pastors, but these are two men that people really knew well. The first one was Harry Reeder, who's been the pastor at Birmingham uh, Briarwood Church in uh, Alabama, the first church in the PCA. He wasn't the first pastor, but he served there for the last 20 years. He was killed in a car accident on Thursday, suddenly, shockingly, really. He's one of the strongest leaders we've ever had in the denomination, just his presence at General Assembly and across the various agencies, and just as a person who you look to as a, a real godly presbyter. And he was killed that instantly, still very, very active in the ministry. The other pastor was Tim Keller, who is no doubt the most popular, well-known PCA pastor probably ever, across denominational lines the world over. And he died after two years uh, of a battle with cancer. I'm interested when I think back at both of their lives and teaching that they never got away from this simple thing that Jacob understood, and I hope we all never forget. You never get over the initial gospel message, and you shouldn't. You always go back to that message of your forgiveness in Christ. The finished work of Jesus makes you his child. By faith, we trust in that work on our behalf, and we are his sons and daughters. So whatever complexity your life brings you, you still always go back there. Harry Reader said, early in my Christian life, I thought the gospel was a message to win people to Christ. Then, in disciple-making, one moved to deeper things. What a fallacy, he said. You never move beyond the gospel. You go deeper and higher with the gospel, but never beyond the gospel. The gospel is what defines how we are to be Christian men or Christian women, spouses, parents, citizens. The gospel brings the reign of Jesus Christ and his kingdom into our hearts and then throughout the world. We continually go back to the sure promise of God's grace. Tim Keller said, we never get beyond the gospel. We never get beyond the gospel in our Christian life to something more advanced. The gospel is not the first step in a stairway of truths. Rather, it is more like the hub of a wheel of truth. The gospel is not just the ABCs of Christianity, it's the A to Z of Christianity. The gospel is not just the minimum required doctrine necessary to enter the kingdom of God, but it's the way that we make all progress in the kingdom. So the key to continual and deeper spiritual renewal and revival, Keller says, or said, is the continual rediscovery of the gospel. When the chips were down and Esau was coming, Jacob went back to the gospel. Lord, God of Abraham and Isaac, you promised them your grace. You promised me that grace too. And you refer back, and that grounds you, because even if Esau and kill, comes and kills him, he is safe in his God's hands. But that wasn't God's will. Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, you told me, return to my country. Please deliver me. 
You said, surely you will do good to me and make your offspring as the sand of the sea. Jacob's former reflex was getting a scheme together to trick his brother. A maneuvering. But now having met God, Jacob goes to prayer as his reflex. We see something in his leadership then that follows this prayer. Recognizing all who he's responsible for, in knowing that he did, in fact, harm Esau, he devises a way to hopefully make restitution. Uh, yes, he wants to soften Esau, but he owes Esau something. Certainly Esau would have felt that way. Think of what Esau felt he was swindled out of. So putting all of these things together, Jacob then develops a plan that hopefully will bring some, some reconciliation between himself and his brother. This is wise, selfless leadership that he shows. When he sets to send his family forward, that's not a coward move. He's doing it covered with these presents so that it will appease Esau. Esau will see Jacob's possible heart's intent, calm him enough to hopefully give safety. If he waits to meet Esau right away in the fury of it all, that would be more dangerous. So this is the plan that he devises. Look at verse 13. He stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau. That's one of the bigger understatements. This present is massive. He sends 550 animals to his brother, and they're all delineated here. This is huge money. This might have been half or more of what he even owned that he brought out with him from Laban. A massive amount of money to pay, tens of thousands of dollars for sure. And then what he does is he divides them into three droves. He sends one drove with a message, so Esau sees all these animals coming, you know, 150 plus, whatever they are, it breaks down to, he sees all these animals coming. And then he gets a message, and the message is that your brother's coming soon. And he looks up for his brother, his brother's not there yet, but then more animals come, more gifts come. Another servant says, same thing, these are for you, these are from, from Jacob. And he thinks more about it, and now he's got 350, whatever it is he's got already, and then he's waiting for his brother to finally come. And then there again comes another drove of animals. And so three droves of this. And then his family would come out. So now he's, okay, Jacob really does have a lot of stuff here. He's trying to make amends. He's thinking this through. He's got all this livestock now. His family with children come through. So this is his plan. This is, this is Jacob's idea so that he could finally present himself before Esau after all this has happened. Now it's very interesting. An Old Testament scholar, Derek Kidner, makes a point in connecting what Jacob does with something Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to what Jesus teaches in Matthew 5 and see if it doesn't resonate with what Jacob's trying to do. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled with your brother and then come and offer your gift. Is it possible that Jacob's going to the promised land. This is going to be his sacred connect with God and with his establishment of the nation. He's got 11 of his children. Another son's going to be born, the 12 tribes. But before I go there, I've got to make this right with my, my brother. And so he sends a gift to him, and he tries to do what he can do to bring reconciliation. This shows in itself a different mindset from a person who's been changed. He hands it over to the servants, and it unfolds. And then he says finally, interestingly, in verse 20, you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, we know the exact thought pattern, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. What does appease mean? 
to make peace with him. I might placate him. It's actually from the, group, from the Hebrew root kippur, yom kippur, the day of atonement. So atonement is another word that could be, that I may make atonement with him. That's what he hopes to do, to make up for what harm he had done to him. That's his plan. This is leadership that's wise and selfless. It includes praying and planning. It includes not strategy and manipulation, but planning on the basis of reliance upon God and knowing he had wronged Esau. We see a selfless leadership here in Jacob, which we have not seen in him before. Finally, we see a mysterious meeting that we probably heard about since we were little children. This wrestling match that Jacob has with God, as it seems. And this is for the purpose of, of doing a, not a final work in Jacob, there's more to be done, but a real maturity that must come about for Jacob to be God's choice servant as he goes into the promised land. Because Jacob still had a fear. He's admitting it to the Lord, but how will this fear be pushed out of his life? How will he stop being scared of everything that comes at him externally? I'd be scared too if I were him. So God would have to do for me what he does for Jacob, and he does for you. When we're fearful of things, it's not that he takes all the fear away, but he gives us reminder and calls us to dependence on him, forces dependence on us because he loves us, and he gives us a new identity that's wrapped up in him and not the externals any longer. Look what it says in verse 22. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and their 11 children, and crossed the ford of Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. By this time, all the droves were ahead, all his servants were ahead. Now it's his family, and there nothing left. He's come with even, doesn't even say he has a staff. So less than he came with. And there he is alone, waiting for a pause to the next day that he'll start to move up to meet Esau. Jacob was left alone. This had to be the beginning of a very trying time in his mind and heart, left alone with his thoughts. But his solitude was interrupted by a mysterious figure. We read in verse 24, And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. There are different ways to wrestle, of course. It seems as though the man who's wrestling him is affronting him, and he's in defensive posture the whole time. There's no indication Jacob's going back after him. He's just trying to fend off whoever's coming at him. It's described as a man. This heavenly figure seems to appear out of nowhere and this starts to wrestle with Jacob. And this goes on for hours. Now remember, Jacob is a formidable physical specimen. You remember earlier when he came to the well and all the other guys used to take a bunch of guys to move the top of the well and he just moved it, kind of impressed Rachel? That's Jacob. He's not, any, he's not a sniveling little wimp. He's a herdsman. And so he's fending off this man, wrestling him. He gives resistance. Now who was this man? Some say he was an angelic being, like the Jewish rabbis tend to say this. And they take it from a, maybe an over-literal reading of what Hosea says about the angels of God or this angelic or angel that he was fighting off. But the word angel without context simply means heavenly messenger, doesn't, a divine messenger. It doesn't have to be an angelic being. You need more context for that. This could have been a theophany. This is a physical manifestation of God. It could be a Christophany a physical manifestation of the pre-incarnate Christ. We don't know for sure, but we do know that Jacob says, for I have seen God face to face. And he names the place seeing the face of God. He believes he's wrestling God. And we should believe that too in some fashion. Why does God engage Jacob in this wrestling match? What's the point of this endeavor? 
What is this maturing point coming to a climax concerning in this wrestling match? I like to describe it this way. When my boys were young, very young, uh, then they, as they grew up, they would sit in church, and they're not in this service. It came the first one so I could talk about them. Um, at least one of them was there. So they would poke each other nonstop during the service. Now, you didn't notice it because you're sitting there, but I noticed it. And I'm sitting right here, and I'm giving them the, the death stare, and that wasn't working. And they're still picking each other four, six, eight. And then as they got really for about a five-year period, every Sunday I was like having to, you know, kept them. Finally, I broke them up, put one with Elder Creasy, another one with John Myers. I had them broken up over the sink because they were constantly picking each other. And then their physicality was just nonstop, and their energy was nonstop. And so Sunday especially, because it was a slower day than they were used to, and they had to sit still for so long. So when we get home, we would have lunch, and then right after lunch, it would, we would have a huge wrestling match with me and the three boys. For a long time, that worked out all right. It didn't work out so good in the years later, and that's when I retired from this. But for a while, I would wrestle them and wrestle them, and the point was is to just get them to work out all their energy so they could take a good nap, and I could too. And so we're wrestling and wrestling. But my middle son, who's less vocal than the others, he just had this. I could feel when I'd, when I'd bear hug him. My version of wrestling was bear hug them. I'd, I'd throw them around a little bit. Then they'd jump and dive on me. But then I'd grab them and hold them. And they would do everything to get out. And they just couldn't understand why they couldn't get out. They didn't understand the weight disparity like I understood it. And I would get on Nico and I would lean on him. Not so much just to hurt him, but just he could not move. And they would get him so frustrated he couldn't move. He would do this. We would, we, it'd be 20 minutes. He wouldn't utter a word. And he wouldn't say he quit. He never would quit. But he got so tired, so sleepy. He just couldn't go any longer. He finally quit fighting me. and just kind of went loose and then I let off. This is what happens when God wrestles Jacob. He is trying to wrestle the fear out of Jacob. See, Jacob should not worry about Esau. He should only worry about God. And God's holding him so he realizes, I can't get away from him. I, I cannot. Now, at the same time, you'll notice what the man says, God. He says that he did not prevail. It says in verse 25, they were wrestling to the break of day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. So, it's not that he couldn't prevail, but the work of what was happening here, what was unfolding, was working. Uh, Jacob had uh, this thing that had to be ridded from his life, this fear of man over the fear of God. And God wanted him to know, I'm the only one you should worry about. Say, the way this translates, you shouldn't fear that doctor's appointment. That's not where your fear, your fear should be of God. And I don't mean fear like scared, just respect who really controls these things. It's not your checkbook or what's in your bank account or what person says what about you or any of the things that so bother us because we have the fear of man. God will grab us and hold us till we realize they're not our problem. Our issue has to be with God and to have faith in him that he knows what's best for us. And he'll hold us till we stop wriggling in whatever fashion it is so that we acknowledge that. And this is what Jacob needed in his life. Esau is the least of his concerns in reality. His concern should be to walk with his God. And what does the man do? Simply touches the hip of Jacob and puts his hip out of joint. This hip joint affects every other joint in your body. You think it's other joints. Oh, my knee. Would be. Your hip goes out. You cannot, nothing works right. And you cannot, you cannot do anything. You can't lift something. Walking's difficult. Moving side to side is treacherous. It's debilitating. Just one touch and his hip is thrown out of socket. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. The man supernaturally injures Jacob, and it ends the match, and it subdues Jacob. But Jacob won't let go. 
he still holds on. Just like he held on to the foot of his brother, he holds on. The man says, let me go for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not. I will not let you go unless you bless me. He knows he needs this man. He needs God. And I won't let you go now. You've proven to me you're powerful. I can't, you can just touch me and that's over. Bless me. What is your name? Jacob, deceiver, supplanter. That's what I'm known by. Then he said, your name will no longer be Jacob. You're no longer supplanter. That's not your identity any longer. But Israel, for you have striven with God and with men, and it prevailed. Prevailed. He got his hip to, he's prevailed. He's gotten the blessing. He's realized that God is who he's beholden to, who he's dependent upon. And Jacob receives a new name, which becomes the, nation, the name of the nation God draws from him. Then Jacob says to him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. In other words, you should, you should know who I am. You know who I am. So Jacob responds by saying, I'm calling this place Peniel, which means the face of God. For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. So God had purpose with me, or I, wouldn't, I would be gone. One commentator says, well, to summarize this, in the end, Jacob does what we all must do. In his weakness and fear, he faces God. Jacob was separated from all others and from his worldly possessions. And that's when he grapples all night for what is truly important. It was an exhausting struggle that left him crippled. It was only after he wrestled with God and ceased his struggling, realizing that he could not go on without him, that he received God's blessing. This is true for all of us, brothers and sisters. Whatever it is, whatever it is, God's using it in your life, touching your hip in some figurative way for you just to realize the power he has, the one who's holding you, that you're wrestling against is your God, and he holds you, and you can depend on him. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Jacob had met God 20 years before at Bethel and slowly but surely was being changed. He was more aware spiritually after he met God at Bethel, no doubt, but it continued to grow over the 20 years. He was more prayerful after meeting God at Bethel 20 years prior. He was more selfless in his leadership and in his outlook, his responsibilities, than he was 20 years prior. But now, he just wrestled with God. He lost in one sense, but he really won in the other. In his loss, he became more dependent on God than ever before. And God in getting to know God, meeting God like this, will forever transform you. Everything about your life will be different. Just look at Jacob. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we continue to gain new insights as we study the life of Jacob here. Your interactions with him are so careful and wise. We know that your interactions with us and the circumstances of our lives are also careful and wise. Lord, as we grow into our new identities, Ease our discomforts that come from this spiritual growth, but not too much. For we know the safest, most joyful place is to be in total dependence upon you. Pray this through Christ. Amen.